0: Is this thing on?
1: Yesterday's price is not today's price.
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the number three business management podcast in Zambia. I love all four of you. Thank you for listening to the Run the Numbers podcast. We are Mr. Worldwide, wide, wide. Okay. So quick shout out to Susan at the dog park with uh, the great Dane Daisy. She asked me what my hobbies were. I told her I had a podcast. She actually went and listened to my podcast and then sent it to her CFO. Pretty cool. I want everyone to be like Susan. Okay. I want you to smash the five stars and share it with your CFO, your mom, your dad, your auntie Pam. If you can prove that you showed this podcast to somebody and they gave it five stars I will literally call your boss, record it, and tell them that you are doing a great job. And I really hope somebody takes me up on this because it'll be a pretty funny recording to just cold call your boss and tell them how great you're doing at work when I don't work with you. Okay, so I just got off the phone with my buddy Sebastian. I met him when he was working at Coatu. 2 He invested in a cybersecurity company that I was working at. And um, he's at Lightspeed Ventures now. Very bright guy, as you'll see. His brain burns on a high temperature. And we literally did an hour on total addressable market. You know, all the haters out there said, these boys cannot do a total hour on one arcane topic. And we said, hold our beers. We're going to do it. And what you're going to hear on this are some pretty intriguing things that you probably didn't know that VCs were looking into, if you're an operator, when they go to invest in your business. And a lot of it is doing backwards math and looking at it as a power law. And what I mean by that is they're looking for one, two, or three single digit number of investments to return potentially the entire fund, which may be 20 investments. And so that means that a billion dollar outcome may not actually be big enough for, for some of these funds. Um, and that's a lot to handle if you're a founder, because by all like, you know, normal people standards, a billion dollar company is an amazing, amazing outcome. Um, but what they're doing is working backwards to see if, you know, one investment has a potential to return the whole fund and then inception level here. Okay. We're going to inception level. If the next person can potentially sell it for more, cause they're thinking, Hey, I need an exit too. What's the next buyer going to potentially sell the company for two. Uh, and is this opportunity big enough to take those two leaps? So me and Sebastian are going to do some public math. We're going to talk about Tam and shout out Zambia. I love you, Zambia. Give us five stars. I really need this. And on to the show. Welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. I have one of the biggest brains in the game with me today. The man, the myth, the legend, some would say the Michael Jordan of Total Addressable Market, Sebastian Dusseldorf of Lightspeed Ventures. Thanks
1: for joining me, man. Thank you, CJ. And uh, I have to correct you a few times already. Uh, I looked this up. I'm probably more the the, the Muggsy Bogue, I think is, he's called. The, the smallest Bogues, NBA yeah. player of all times. I actually um, have, for those on video,
0: I have a, you I have do. a miniature Mugsy Bogues right next to me. Yeah, the, There you go. So that that's
1: me. And then I'll, I'll forgive you on my last name.
0: Sorry about that. I've just <laughs> been so nervous to, to talk to you. We haven't caught up in so long. So for those listening, me and Sebastian go back for, for quite a while. So we met probably four or five years ago. He was working at Coatu at the time. I was running fp a at Sneak, just fighting the good fight in the trenches. And he was doing due diligence on the cybersecurity company I was at. And I kind of found myself as an operator on the other side of the table, passing him data and sending him pitch decks on the company and stuff. And I was trying to figure out what would make him comfortable with investing in our company. We were growing really fast at the time. We had some pretty solid metrics but we were also trying to tell a story about going from one product to multi-product and how we were going to gobble up TAM. Since meeting Sebastian, he's had the best way I've thought to frame up how companies approach markets in this word called extensibility, which I'm really not still all that sure what it means. But I wanted to have him on today as our first VC, actually, on the podcast to kind of enlighten us on how you know, the person on the other side of the table may be thinking about your market and sizing you up. So are you down to have a jam session today on TAM? Let's do it. So I wanted to I wanted to ask, why is TAM so important to investors? For all the founders out there working on a pitch deck, how large is a big enough market from your perspective in dollar terms? And, and just why is it important?
1: Obviously, the key metric that we as, as investors have to think about, uh, our business is you know, taking money from from our LPs and hopefully turning it into a lot more and and, and giving it back to them uh, at some point down the road. And um, that's obviously directly tied to you know how big a company can become that that we invest in, right? If you know we are a ten percent shareholder in a company and it becomes, you know, a five billion dollar company, that's a really nice return on on the way out. In order to become a five billion company there's obviously certain things that have to happen from a from a revenue standpoint and from a profitability standpoint as as we're learning these days um, profitability seems to be important too and then you know when you think about what needs to happen from a revenue standpoint, there obviously needs to be uh, just simply the opportunity to go and and get those dollars from from whoever your customer is right and the bigger The bigger the outcome has to be, the bigger the the amount of revenue is that that we have to get to and the bigger the market that that we need to get to. And the dynamic that I think sometimes uh, can be a little bit more abstract to founders is that there are mechanics at venture firms um, that do play into this pretty meaningfully. If I have a $100 million fund, then investing in a company that has a billion dollar outcome can be obviously very, very impactful on, on our fund returns. Um, it can return the fund. It might even return the fund multiple times over, depending on the ownership I have in that company. Now, you know, we at Lightspeed we have a five billion dollar growth fund, approximately. Uh, at, you know, my time at Koto we had a, a fund that was larger than that. Even you, know, you can imagine that in that case, if you want to have a very meaningful impact on 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 that fund, you you do have to return um, a lot of money with with a single investment. And obviously, it's not just about a single investment, but um, we do talk a lot about uh, power laws in, in 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 venture investing and typically what we tend to see that in these venture funds is that a smaller handful of companies do drive a lot of the returns uh for those funds um and it's also just a pure pure numbers game where we can't invest in 200 or 300 companies to get to our total dollars return to our investors that's that's too much work right it's, yeah. it's not feasible to handle so we do require a certain size of exit and a certain size of outcome uh and if that has to be uh, possible, then we really have to think very hard about TAM. And unfortunately, that sometimes will mean that certain TAMs are too small for us. And just to point out what you were saying there, you're in essence working
0: backwards from a potential outcome, right? Like, is the outcome big enough based on what I'm getting into today?
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And again, it's sort of this very, very simple math of if I feel like I need to get to a a $5 billion outcome uh, to to make a return and Maybe I'm in the SaaS world, and these days, uh, you know, the multiple is very, very generously speaking, perhaps a, a 10 times revenue multiple. Uh, and let's not even get into a debate on that. Let's just assume for a second we we all agree on that for for, for just this moment. Um, you know, we're talking about a $500 million revenue company uh, you right. need to get to, right? And then you can start to walk backwards. Well, is this is going to be a market where you have a winner-take-most, a winner-take-all winner dynamic, which is very rare in software, right? Even a Salesforce only has a 20, 30% market share in CRM. And most people would consider them to be absolute leaders in the CRM category. So if that's true, if only a company like that has a, has a 20% market share, now you're talking about a, a market that needs to be, you know, 2.5 billion. Um, if you're assuming $500 million of revenue, by the time you, 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 you exit and, and a 20% market share, and that's not even quite enough, because you, you certainly also have to think about the person that will buy the shares from you. Uh, meaning if i'm able to to sell for for ten times revenue it probably means that um there's an expectation that there's a lot more growth to be had for that next owner of that of that company or the next owner of the shares that i s the investor might sell at some point so it's really not even two and a half it's it's a multiple of the two and a half you're not only working
0: backwards from your expected outcome you're working backwards from the next owner's expected outcome as well.
1: Yeah, there is, there is sort of an, a next buyer analysis where you, you have to think very hard about um, how is that next investor going to think about the opportunity by the time that, you know, your journey with a company may end. I do have to
0: call it the elephant in the room, like me, an operator. I may be looking at it like my company's worth a
1: billion dollars, two billion dollars. Is that not good enough? It's a really difficult question because I think everybody would objectively say, if if you are a founder and, and you're able right. to build a billion dollar business, that's an incredible success. And I oftentimes, you know, when I do have these conversations where maybe we as a team decided, look, it's a, it's a category, it's a space where we don't quite feel like the outcome can be big enough. That is a message that, that is hard to, to deliver to a founder, right? Because uh, it's, you know, that person's life's work. For that person to get to 100 million of revenue is, is going to be a tremendous success. Few of us on the on the venture side have, have done it ourselves. I certainly haven't done it myself. I haven't sold anything, right? I, I sell dollars for for a job, um, not so much uh, software or, or or other things. So it, it can be sort of a difficult conversation. So, but that's also why at times it's, it's actually helpful to walk people really through the thinking of, look, this is how our business works. This is how we come to that conclusion.
0: And that's a big part of why I wanted to have this conversation with you, because when you explained it to me the first time, I stopped looking at it as this mentality of like, are you saying what I'm doing isn't good enough? It's just no, the situation isn't right for the profile that we're trying to return with the current valuation that you have and the projection you're giving us. And at that point, it becomes more of an objective math problem than saying something is good or bad. It's just all relative to, I guess, the situation you're working off of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's actually a really important topic for founders to to think about as well because uh, it, it should inform how the founder uh, thinks about the, the the whole fundraising history of the company as well, right? If the most likely outcome is a, a billion dollar acquisition, you know, should you raise? That hundred million dollar round at some point while you are building that company, right? Or should you choose a, a, a slightly more capital efficient path? And you know, even if if maybe investors and certainly in twenty twenty one that that I am sure happened to a lot of folks, even if investors were you know, calling you every day and, and begging you almost to put more money in at you know very very high valuations, that they, they, you know if you have full awareness of what the most likely outcome of your business might be, given the time constraints that it might exist in your particular market. Maybe the right decision is to say no. You know what? Even if I could raise this money now, I'm I'm not going to because I have a a perspective on what the most likely outcome is, and and it's actually going to be the much more impactful personal outcome for me if I own thirty percent of the business that that gets to a billion dollars versus owning you know ten percent of the business that gets to two billion dollars or a billion and a half. And to go back to something I was asking at the beginning,
0: and it's it was uh, a bit provocative. Like how big is enough TAM? Would you say it's all relative to the point in which you invest? Like d- does the TAM have to be bigger and the runway bigger the later, later stage of the investment is made and the higher the valuation
1: is? Is that how I should think about it? Yeah. I mean, to some extent, yes. Right. I think there's a bit of a nuance here, certainly also that, you know, at the later stages, um, you, you may have slightly different return expectations. You, you're no longer, from an investor standpoint, looking for that 10, 20x outcome. You might be looking for, you know, 3, 4x return that might impact a little bit how you're thinking about it. Um, but yeah, generally, if if you're investing, I mean, certainly, and this is a whole different uh, can of worms, but we have 400 software unicorns out there right now or something like that, right? So they're all valued over a billion dollars. Um, yeah. So even if they were all sitting, you know, right at a at, at billion dollars today, which they're obviously not, many of them are valued even higher, um, but even if it was just at a billion, the assumption is now that we need to build, you know, 400 companies that are worth at least $3 billion to generate 3x returns at the current valuations, right? And then you, again, you you work backwards, say, well, it's, you know, 400 companies, $3 billion worth. They're all 10x AR, which they obviously won't be, but let's just assume now we had 400 companies with $300 million of revenue. That's, that's pretty hard. Wow. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll
0: be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year that's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less close their books in days not weeks and drive down costs one because your business is one-of-a-kind so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs and one efficient system with one source of truth manage risk get reliable forecasts and improve margins everything you need all in one place right now download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist Designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash metrics. That's netsuite.com slash metrics to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash metrics. Let's unpack that one later. What I do want to get into for those ramping up to the concept of TAM is tactically how it's calculated or the framework's for getting there. And so when you were doing due diligence on us, I got this sense that you were asking for metrics so you could do a buildup on your own. And I think it was kind of like a price times quantity that you're trying to do of whatever you know widget or seat we were selling. Can you explain how what framework you use on your side to calculate, Tam? Yeah. And usually
1: it's a it's a triangulation of of a few different things. But one is certainly trying to get to the core of what the what the price times quantity might be in a market. And in, in, in some spaces it can be a little bit more straightforward, right? And in some cases it might be when you're a seat-based software model, uh, the price is is pretty clear. It's it's whatever the company decides. Now, that in and of itself is a is a conversation, obviously, right? You could set the price in ways to to maybe reach a broader audience versus not, but let's just assume for a moment that the price is sort of a given. And then it's really about understanding understanding the queue. And in the case of a of a seat-based model that, that's really understanding very deeply who who the end user of the product is today and and who the end user of the product might be over time, right? That's one of the slightly easier things to do. Um, I think there there certainly can be nuances around the really defining the queue in particular having the ability to to foresee perhaps a little bit how queue might expand, right? Like figma is a really a famous example, one that I certainly got very wrong early on. And it would have been very easy to say it's going to be a very small core of designer users that would pay for it, and and obviously it it, it ended up um, going way beyond that original user base. But being able to to a think very clearly about what the status quo is today, what the P and the Q is today, and then being able to have the vision of what what it might become over time, I think that's really important. But then there's obviously also models that that aren't P times Q in the sense of you know seat times a monthly monthly output or something like that. And and there's models that are a lot harder to really quantify the TAM, right? And I I, I sometimes use the the Snowflake example, right? It's not a perceived-based model. It's, it's, it's obviously based on compute credits that are being utilized. And sure, there's ways to 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 perhaps try to approximate how many credits a company might need or how many queries a person might run and how many credits might be needed for to power those queries. And there's certain... Things you might be able to do, but it's a lot harder than thinking about you know, slack and saying, "Hey, I know how many knowledge workers they are, and I can even go as far as saying as you know how many of those knowledge workers sit in companies between fifty and five thousand employees because maybe that's my i c p and you know I can even go further than that and say well if they as long as they're sitting in the following three or four departments in marketing and sales and whatever else it might be, then it's addressable like that is somewhat easier to really articulate than Uh, some of those other models that are are not seat based and some sort of volumetric metric that's just harder to to, to grasp at times. It's sometimes really useful, not only in those models and the seat based models as well, but it's sort of trying to figure out, okay, is there some derivative way of thinking about the TAM that sometimes it's tied a little bit to the value that the solution might actually be creating, right? Uh, And it's not necessarily a very, very precise way to do it, but it at least can sometimes be this, this little check for you is like, oh, am I completely off on this number or not? At KOTU, we're investors in a company in the cloud security space. Here at Lightspeed, we're investors in a different company in the cloud mm-hmm. security space. A framework that I always had in mind for that particular category was such that security tends to be an attach rate in, in some way of the underlying infrastructure you're trying to protect. Uh, so if you're protecting, for example, in this case, cloud infrastructure, workloads, then maybe you should be spending some percentage of what you're spending on that actual like infrastructure, you should be spending that to secure that infrastructure. That's at least historically how security spend has worked as well. And if you looked in the past, if you looked at the historical categories like firewall security and others, uh, oftentimes that would equate to about 10%, meaning 10% of your infrastructure spend would then be spent subsequently to protect that infrastructure. Um, And if you just assume that that sort of simple framework continued to hold, you could start to really understand and and get an idea of how big cloud security might become.
0: And then it gets even more complicated when a company is talking about where they'll go next, right? Because I'm I'm assuming you're doing a TAM on what they're currently selling. But then to get to that power law outcome that you were describing, Many of these companies need a second engine, a third engine for growth. Like You see companies such as Datadog that have this crazy multi-product attach. How do you even start to think about TAM when it comes to going broader than, than just the first product line? I will
1: say that it's actually fairly rare that we run into a company or we see a, a deck from a company where you immediately say the number is too small, the TAM is too small, right? Because most people find a way to actually show you, call it a 2 to $5 billion TAM,
0: right? Could I also show you a number that's way too big to believe, like a product that's sold to
1: men? And I'm like, well, it's half the world, technically. A 100%, a 100%. And I, I think what I was hoping we, we could maybe get to in a little bit is because I, I see this here, you know, in in our job, we obviously then go go away and and do our own TAM analysis, and when when I see it uh, being done in our on our side of the table. I also oftentimes then run into these situations where the team might say, "Hey, look, here's the way that I get to a five billion dollar 10. You told me you're concerned about the size of the opportunity here, and we can't build a big enough outcome. But I did the math. There's this many companies, and there's many employees, and you know this is how you can get to them, and you know it's five billion dollars. Isn't this big enough?" And and I think there is actually more behind that, right? There's uh, questions around where is the market today. I think it's really important to understand where the market is today in terms of uh, is it really one where you are at a point of the maturity curve of that market, where actually enough dollars can flow your way as a, as a startup, so you can build a company in in a time frame that matters to to a venture investor? It doesn't matter quite as much if you know, you can get to two hundred million over twenty years, right? Our industry is built in such way that it does require a faster growth trajectory than that, right? And whether or not a company can get to two hundred million dollars in two years, to so three years, or five years, it's not just a matter of is this a five billion or a ten, but it's also very much a matter of, okay, are there incumbents in the market? Yes. Let's just say it's 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 a complete replacement market, right? Everybody already has a has a CRM software solution. Maybe in that particular market it happens to you be fully on prem, but they all have something. So now it's a complete replacement market, and you're coming in with a beautiful, you know, cloud CRM solution for that particular. A part of the market or so, right? And then you might say, well, I can get all of those. They should all be on, on cloud. But now the question is like, how fast is that really going to happen, right? Um, is that going to happen in a year or two? Are they really all waiting for the cloud CRM solution or is it is it, is it going to take more time? And then people might come to say, like, well, I actually talked to a bunch of them. They all signed three-year contracts with a CRM provider. So it turns out a third of the market is going to be available to us every year. Like that's enough, right? And it was like, well... Maybe it's actually an interesting thought process, but I think there is another level deeper you got to go. Then there's like, well, yes, the you know the contract comes up every three years, so that's that's good. But are they really going to be in a moment in time or in, in in a situation where they where they're willing to make a change? Are they really going to do that? Like, how quickly is that market really going to turn over? And like the contract length of these existing solutions might be an indicator. But my suspicion is actually if a third of the market comes up a large part of that third is actually just gonna keep plugging along, put a signature under that contract again, and say, well, we'll keep going with you because it's too painful to, to rip and replace, right? So it's those sort of things where it's not just the $5 billion headline number, it's really trying to think very hard about, okay, but how, how much of that $5 billion is actually up for grabs every year, right? How much is actually out there where a customer makes a new, new buying or purchasing decision and then there's obviously the whole competition question as well, right? Because then you're competing for those dollars and you're not gonna be the only person going after those
0: dollars as well. I wanna dig more into that because that's a that's a multivariable equation you're trying to figure out. To play back what I was hearing, it's it's not only do you have like the right to own the market in terms of like is your product good enough, but it's are people willing to make a change, and then what 's the competition? It kind of reminds me of like within vertical markets and i don 't mean to bring up a whole another bag of burritos here, but they 're not usually technology buyers that go through frequent tech refreshes so if you think about like maybe you, your crm 's up every three years or two years, but maybe like if you work selling into the auto industry or something, they only consider new tech every five to ten years, so then you have another yeah piece of your equation that you have to adjust because even though you may have a right to that market and your tech is good, the person buying on the other end isn't willing to evaluate your tech. and You don't get that at bat as frequently as you think. And I think that
1: sometimes gets overlooked a little bit. It does take a very, very long time to display some of these existing solutions. Uh, and then again, you're obviously not going to be the only ones to go after that one customer that decides to bring in something modern. So it's really this this multi-step process start at the top, what's the total dollar spent on an annual basis in a market? How much of that could actually shift from an existing vendor to you as a new vendor? And how much of the dollars that are shifting, are you likely to win? And, you know, maybe you're the very best new entrant in the market, and you, you get a very, very big share of it. But you may not, maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 40%. And there's there's a bunch of other vendors that are winning winning business as well. So th- there's there's a lot of these bottlenecks and limiting factors to to how quickly you can really go through a TAM. And Sebastian, you'd use the word
0: uh, maturity of the market. I, th- I think you were describing the market, but you use the word maturity. Is that like being in the right TAM at the right time, or what did you mean by that? Maybe it's a
1: good one to go back to the little conversation we had about cloud security, right? Yeah, um, That one is sort of interesting and relatively easy to conceptualize because it's obviously so directly tied to the adoption of cloud infrastructure in the first place. Uh, the cloud security isn't really worth anything if everybody has, you know, their own data centers and on-prem infrastructure. They're not using AWS, they're not using Azure. So the underlying market to which you know, cloud security is a derivative in a way, had to develop in a certain way first so that cloud security could actually emerge. Right. And there was probably a little bit of reason why, you know, that first generation of cloud security companies that magically all got acquired by Palo Alto Networks uh, for three or $400 million. Um, they ended up being smaller in terms of the outcome at that moment in time than, than obviously is the case now, right? We now have a company with, with Wiz in the private market still that's valued at $10 billion. You know, obviously multiples bigger than, than that prior iteration. And I think part of that was certainly the timing of the market, right? When, when that first iteration of, of companies was out there, There weren't quite as many companies out there yet that were actually had meaningfully shifted infrastructure over to the cloud. Uh, And again, security also tends to be one of those things where you don't buy it the second you try something new, the second there's a new attack vector. You shift stuff into the cloud first, you're excited, you put a little bit more in there, you know, the moment there's there's more and more out there in the, in, in the public cloud, all of a sudden attackers get more excited about, more interested in it. They start to attack you and then you react to it. So it's sort of like a lag, right? And oftentimes people use this very simple framework of like, well, it might take a couple years of lag for a, a security solution to emerge for sort of a new attack vector. Um, just because, it, yeah, it has to become important enough for people in CISOs to really care about.
0: That's pretty wild. You're not predicting the TAM of what something is today. You're predicting where the puck is going and how underlying, I guess, themes may change to
1: broaden that TAM. I mean, we obviously in an incredibly interesting and exciting moment in time with with AI and generative AI. And now everybody is thinking about, well, when we have a lot of, you know, AI models in production Well, we'll have to probably secure them in some way. That's probably going to be a new threat vector that emerges, right? We probably also need some some level of, you know, in production monitoring of those models, right? And like now we're starting to see obviously lots of companies going after that, um, which certainly makes a ton of sense. If I'm an early stage investor, I sit more at the growth stage, and generally I would say, well, they're super interesting. I'm thinking a lot about them, but are they quite there yet? Where there's enough actual production use cases of generative AI that companies and CISOs and, and, and CTOs and CEOs are starting to think about, well, I need a security solution for this. It's it's on their mind, right? I think it's pretty clear it's going to come, but it is important to keep in mind, okay, where are we in terms of the maturity curve of that underlying market? What is the timeframe with, uh, with which that derivative market will emerge? So Sebastian, I have a new vocab word I've, I've learned,
0: uh, and, I think I can spell it now, but I don't know what it means. Extensibility. Can you
1: can you break that one down for me? Maybe even starting with why it's important. I would say if you look back in the history of, of successful software companies, for the very best software companies out there, it'd be very unusual that the same TAM, the same product that that company started with or was founded around, um, ends up being the one product that generates billions and billions of revenue down the road when the company is a public market company and a 20 50 100 billion a public market company what more often than not tends to happen is that that company starts with an initial product realizes that you can either extend that product into a different use case a different user base a different type of customer um, but typically, it, it it also means that that company goes from that initial product to other products that might be initially very adjacent to that original insertion point and original product that they built. And then over time, it might might get more removed from the original core. But that sort of extensibility of the initial starting point for the company tends to be a direct driver of how long that growth runway for a company is. And if we kind of unpacked a little bit, I think the, the very simplistic view is obviously that at the core, every product will hit a TAM limit at some point. Now, some are certainly bigger than others, but there's a limit uh, to, to every product. And if you want to build a $100 billion public software company and a you know $10 billion revenue company, it's fairly unlikely that um, you'll find a way to get there with one single product. Um, so it's it's just very critical that these companies find ways to, to really attack more and more use cases with more and more uh, products over time so they can just keep that growth engine going over time. Does extensibility, Sebastian,
0: just have to be products or can it be something else like, you know, user personas and finding a different person to use it?
1: You know, geographies, you might start in the US and you might decide that you want to go into Europe. Um, that's certainly one way to expand and it might be a little bit easier in some ways because it obviously doesn't require you necessarily to build a new product. Now, building go-to-market in, in a different geo may not be that easy either. Um, but it's just that's certainly an expansion vector that's that's open to you. It might be going after a different user base, right? Like we we mentioned the the Figma example earlier. You start you know in the core with the, the hardcore product designer, but over time you might find that there's actually other functions within the organization that get use out of that product too. That may not may or may not require you to make some changes to the product, right? Like maybe there's a slightly different skew of the product, or there's there's some aspect of the product that allow you to kind of almost, you know, zoom in and out the level of complexity that certain users might want. Um, but yeah, there's certainly sort of a, a way to expand TAM by just going after different user bases as well. You are a vertical software CFO, in in, in vertical software, you you can sometimes find that. You can sort of like jump around the value chain a little bit. And maybe right. you start in, in, at one point in the value chain, you're in the automotive space, right? You might start with the the auto repair shop. And then all of a sudden, there's a, a, a value, a product you can deliver to the the OEM, the automaker as well, right? Or there might be a product that is usable by distributors of car parts, right? Or it may even be the same product, um, but you are now able to sell it to a different part of the value chain. So that's that's an extensible or a way to extend your TAM as well. The way that I've always thought about it, at least for my industry, you know, being in
0: vertical software is, you know, you have this layer cake that you're adding to over time. So if you own the insertion point or what I call the control point, then from there, you're embedded in a workflow and you can kind of stack different layers of revenue and become
1: more extensible, as we say. What you call that control point or the initial insertion point. I think it's really, really important to think about actually, because Depending on what your initial product is, it may or may not give you the right or more right to own adjacent products. Let, let's go into that.
0: Could you use an example like uh, of a company that you think had a good insertion
1: point that set them up for success? Let's take Toast, for example, which is uh, you know the restaurant software space. And there's, there's definitely people who are much more knowledgeable than I am on, on, on Toast and, and restaurant software the point of sale, the way that somebody might accept payments in a restaurant is pretty critical uh, to the operation of, of that restaurant. And if that perhaps, if you choose that as your initial insertion point, you are a very, very critical vendor to, to that restaurant. And it's not too crazy to assume that that might put you in a position to then end up selling more and more pieces around that initial insertion point. Um, whereas maybe you, you might come into the same restaurant and say, hey, I am a vendor that does review management. So if you want to improve your reviews on 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 Yelp or on, on Open Table rather, uh, I might help you with that. Right? Not to say it's not an interesting product or uh, one that's that's useful to the to the restaurant owner, but feels slightly harder to expand from there into the really critical part of accepting payments in a restaurant or how do you manage your workforce or how do you manage your inventory? I think depending on where you start in sort of the software stack of your relevant customer base, it may be more or less likely that you can you can expand beyond an initial insertion point. Right? Like if you can find yourself to a place where your customer views you almost as the operating system for their business, chances are they're going to give you the chance to give you more and more and more features over time, right? Service Titan, another great example, software for the home services industry. What's important for an HVAC company or a plumbing business, or well, it's like, how do you manage your technicians that are, you know, actually going out and performing service, right? They fix the HVAC or whatever. Might they they might might end up doing, but if you own that engine, if you own that engine that actually runs where your technicians go at different moments in time and which one you should you send to that next project that just came through and the next customer that just called you. If you own that core engine, what are the chances that same customer, that same, you know, plumbing shop or HVAC shop owner will say, look, you're managing this really cool piece for me. Literally if you went down, I cannot longer do my business, but you're doing it so well it actually never goes down. What are the chances that same person then might say, look, why don't I also allow you to be my core CRM where I actually input all my customers and now have a better perspective on like, you know, that customer bought that HREC H- 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 system from me two years ago. Uh, maybe I should go back to that person and upsell on something. Or, you know, there's just so many different things that you can get into if you own that core system. And Service Titan certainly will be considered sort of the operating system for for many of these smallish home services owners today.
0: I love that. And I think about it, if you had everything plugged in, in whatever that place of work is, and you were going around the building, and you were turning things off one by one, if you can be the last thing they turn off, that's a pretty damn good insertion point to have the right to own the other stuff that's tangential to that. Yeah, yeah. You had dropped some names of companies in there, and we were riffing on the vertical software space. Whether it's in the vertical space, horizontal space, what are some companies you think that have been most most artful in the way they've expanded their TAM over time.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, two that come to mind are certainly ServiceNow and Datadog. ServiceNow is fascinating, I think, because I just saw the beginnings of it when they went public. I was just sort of getting into the the industry, but I, I know that there was a lot of discussions around TAM at the time when they went public. And there were certainly folks that felt like, well, ITSM IT service management is is not that big of an opportunity, but I think what what people overlooked and and didn't fully understand, and you know I don't know if I would have understood it. And it's it's fair to say these things in hindsight, uh, obviously. But really at the core, what ServiceNow had built was this really powerful workflow and process engine that they happened to point at ITSM first, but then they were they were then able to point it at a lot of other workflows over time, and if you look at the business today, you know it obviously still has a strong core in, in IT workflows, but it has HR workflows, uh, it has customer workflows that are more sort of customer support in nature. So they've they've continued to expand over time, and and they have these beautiful charts. And if you if you if you went back actually and and looked at the very first investor presentation for service now and, and by the way I can only recommend looking at public company investor presentations like they're actually I would I would say some of the best documents to get a sense for how these companies think it's usually really good articulation of how they think about their TAM how they think about their product portfolio it almost always talks about expansion and where they want to go They also tend to disclose some of the more interesting financial metrics that they don't necessarily give you every quarter. So like they might give you some insight on attach rates of different products. They've just done a fantastic job. And obviously, the other very simplistic way to, to look at it is they've not really made any sizable acquisitions. Sure, they've done some. But if you compare that to a Salesforce, and that's not to throw shade at Salesforce, it's a fantastic business, but they've obviously built a lot of their platform on the back of acquisitions, right? Be it Meosoft, be it Slack, a lot of the marketing tools that they have bought. ServiceNow hasn't really made an acquisition that has come with a really meaningful amount of revenue. If anything, they've bought small companies, technology that became the launch point for for expansion, but it was by and large, mostly organically. And the other name that you dropped, Datadog? Similar in the sense where you go back and they started an infrastructure monitoring, today they obviously multi-product platform with infrastructure monitoring APM lots of security solutions synthetic monitoring more front-end monitoring so they've really expanded beyond that initial starting point in, in infrastructure monitoring and 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 yeah they've done a really really good job again not really acquired a whole lot of business right they've really built this all all out organically um, and it's now this this beautiful company where if you talk to one of the customers they that more likely than not, have adopted three, four, maybe even five different products. And they've gone from, you know, maybe initially spending $100,000 on the product to now spending oftentimes many million dollars, many millions of dollars on the product, right? And they certainly would not have gotten there if it was just on the basis of infrastructure management or infrastructure monitoring. And another
0: beautiful investor day deck. It is. It really best. is. For all the dorks out there, if you know, you know, take a look at Datadog's Investor Data. They do.
1: They right. Yeah, it's it's one of one of the best, I'd say.
0: In those decks, a lot of times they'll talk about TAM and extensibility through metrics. Are there any metrics that you look at to see how TAM plays out
1: to validate it? At the highest level, one that can give you at least an indication, it isn't perfect, but it gives you an indication, is uh, NDR on net retention, net dollar retention, you, you can also have high NDR with just one product, right there's there's ways to do that too if it's a consumption based uh, business and customers just consume more and more of your product, you can have an NDR even if it's just one product, if it's a seed-based product and you have customers that are maybe expanding the usage of your product across your organization, you can have expansion with one product. Uh, but more often than not, at least if you want to have NDR, let's say upwards of 120 percent for a very long time and at scale, I'd argue you're more likely than not are going to need multi products to maintain that sort of expansion rate with your customers, because otherwise uh, sooner or later you you will have sold most of the existing use case or all of the existing use case in a in a given customer with you with your one product, and unless you can go back and offer more product to that same customer, you'll just obviously run out of out of ways to expand. And then it should show up in a uh, average revenue
0: per user, or uh, as a cool kid say ARPU, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And ARPU or ACVs, right? If it's more at the at the company level versus sort of the, the per user level or so, it should show up there as well in some capacity. And it's none of these are perfect, right? It's again, it's sort of an a triangulation and really understanding what's behind those numbers. It's not as easy as just saying, well, it's one twenty 120 or one twenty-five of NDR. There's also other metrics. I mentioned it, I'm almost hundred percent sure Datadog has has slides in there that say things like number of customers that have you know, three plus and four plus and five plus It goes products, up to six right? or eight products now, which is wild. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Uh, and again, like public companies find ways to game that a little bit, right? Like it's pretty easy to get multi-product adoption if you make product two or three free or you put it inside of a pricing package where you almost make it a no-brainer for, for, <laughs> for people to, to choose that package, but they're really only doing it because they want the core and don't care that much about the other stuff. So like there's like ways to game that as well. But if you, if you look at sort of the combination of all those things, you look at you know, some of those more bespoke metrics around attach rates or, or multi-product customers, and then you also look at things like how much of revenue is coming from products that weren't the initial product, and then you also look at NDR, and if you kind of triangulate between all of those metrics that somebody might give you, I think you get a good sense for what is true multi-product adoption. Cool. Was there anything we didn't discuss on TAM before we move into the long-ass lightning round here? We obviously did our, our blog post not too long ago. And I think the piece that was really missing at the time was this notion of really make sure that you don't just check if there's $5 billion of theoretical revenue there, but really think hard about how long might it take you to actually yeah. capture a meaningful piece of that. And I, again, I've mentioned it before, but I think that's something that people you know, oftentimes underestimate it is hard, and part of it is competition, but part of it is also just the national cadence of that industry. What are you at-bats? And you know, in particular, in some of these verticals, or in particular, if you're going after really core systems, the reality is the reason we like them is they're sticky. But if you're the, the, the new entry, that also is the reason why you don't like them, because it, it's going to make it really <laughs> hard for you to replace that incumbent.
0: Yeah. But what if Gartner says it's, you know, $5 billion, Sebastian? Is that lazy? If I just Who take cares? that number? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs>
1: I, no look i mean obviously behind what what behind their uh, Tam estimate i like to think at least and you know they're, they're very smart people there so they're doing some of the same math that we sort of talked through but at the same time as an investor I never rely on it myself right like I, I might use it as a reference point as a starting point nothing else i do want to do my own analysis and i would expect a, a founder to do that as well like I always get nervous when i when i when i see pitch decks that just have these gigantic numbers on it and, and sort of the footnote is, well, IDC or Gartner or this or that. It may even be the right number, but just put the effort in of, of trying to frame it a little bit and, and, and really try to dig into the components a little bit more because it also just shows that you really think deeply about your business.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think you discover something about your business and what you have your sights on by doing that analysis. And what, what Gartner lacks is the specific pace, ratio, or rate at which you can attain the market relative to your own specific company. Well,
1: has hype cycle, I guess. <laughs> yeah,
0: man. It's all about the hype. It's all yeah. about the hype. So what we're going to do here is we're going to move into what we call our long-ass lightning round. There you and go. So what we always ask people is uh, to give us an example of something you've messed up at work before.
1: Uh, I mean... Tons, obviously. Um, tons. But given this is, this was, uh, you know, for the most part a TAM conversation, I, I certainly have my fair share of TAM mistakes I've made. I've been on both sides. I've been on the side mm. of overestimating a TAM, but but the the ones that, that hurt even more candidly is when you underestimate a TAM. There have been uh, some vertical companies, uh, specifically a company called Benchling that sells into uh, sort of the large farmer space. And I couldn't really get my head around it early on and, and felt it was uh, perhaps too small of a market. Turns out they've done really well. The journey isn't completed there yet, but they've certainly outperformed my expectations or my my, my estimates at that moment in time and have proved me wrong in many, many ways. And I, you know, part of that was, was definitely that it was a market and end market that was foreign to me and that, mm. that I didn't have as much appreciation for and ended up not spending enough time really trying to understand what the TAM really is. And I, I probably took too many shortcuts around, well, I only think there's this many companies out there that could buy this. So there's only this many people with this title that I can identify. And if they all only spend X dollars, it's just not that big. But it was uh, I I obviously missed a few things. And that you know, those are some of those mistakes that really hurt. Um, because yeah, when those companies end up, end up getting really big and you maybe had a chance to, to invest at, at, at really like fairly modest valuations, those things hurt. That's a good one.
0: If you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell them? Look, like
1: I came from a more traditional finance background. I, my first job out of, out of college was, was, uh, investment banking. I went from investment banking into really private equity from there, uh, I went into a fund that was a crossover, had one leg in the public market and, and one leg in the private side. And it was generally, I've kind of grown up in environments where there tended to be a very strong emphasis on the quantitative side. And um, I, I'm still a huge believer in, in everything quantitative and I love it. And I, I I still love to 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 be really analytical. But I think there's certainly elements where if you tie yourself too much to the numbers, if you aren't able to look a little bit beyond the numbers, or in particular, if, you're, if you tie yourself too much to what numbers look like historically, either for a particular company or even for a particular space, you're gonna end up making a lot of mistakes. You have to be able to, to marry um, the quantitative perspective with a qualitative perspective as well, right? If you wanted to go back to, to the benching example, the CEO is absolutely fantastic. I recognize now better than I did then. And I also now place more value on sort of the quality of the founder than I would have earlier in my career. By the way, I think quality of of founder also expresses itself in an ability to really think much more broadly around the product. So I think the fact that, again, Benching has done a really good job seeing this initial multi-product green shoots and, and also just seeing ways and and starting to look around corners to see how they can extract more value of their customers, like it's directly a result of the founder being an extremely high quality founder. Yeah. So it's it's really the core of it is like marrying up the quality with the quantitative more. Yeah, you got to do the
0: homework and do the math, but you can't be blinded by your own science. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. We usually ask this question to CFOs, but I'm really curious for the answer here. Can you walk me through your software stack that you use? And what the tools you you
1: kind of are in day to day? It's not very good. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say. My personal CRM is Airtable. That's both for a company CRM, but then also investor CRM and and sort of expert CRM. If I run into a, an interesting CISO that I, you know, might want to talk to again in the future, I keep the details of that in, in Airtable. And that's also my system of of record for have I have I reached out to a company? Have I talked to a company? you know, when did I last talk to the company that sort of thing. We have a company level or firm level of CM as well, but I do a little bit of it myself as well. I live in notion, all my notes go to notion. I absolutely love it. So that's, that's sort of my, my knowledge base. Those are really the two main components. And then we obviously have, have other things like PitchBook and LinkedIn and LinkedIn sales navigator and, and, and things that might give you a bit more tools for the, from a sourcing perspective and, peer fund analysis, whatever else you might be doing. But I, you know, if you were expecting that I had these like elaborate Zapier based workflow set up, I have to unfortunately disappoint you. I like it. I like it. So I
0: have to ask, you're in a lot of data rooms. People are sending you tons and tons of files to peel through. Has there ever been a late night where you're sitting there and you're like, whoa, what was that? What, what was that crazy expense that popped up in the data room? Have you ever seen like a like a founder that expense
1: that, you know, like some horses or something like that? the one thing i have seen is in like the 2020 time period there were definitely a couple instances where i saw fairly outrageous budgets for events okay. uh, user conferences and they ended up becoming pretty elaborate for the stage of those companies at times and those would be expenses that would be quite meaningful but outside of that i've i've fortunately not seen founders buying expensive cars or things like that That's um good. Or, or at least i didn't notice but I think the thing that that I certainly see at times is just, in particular, younger founders, maybe more technically-minded founders as well, they might put forecasts in front of you that sort of defy reality at times a little bit, right? Or at least defy historical context. And I've seen many companies that would have grown faster and and better than than ServiceNow ever did. And we we obviously talked about ServiceNow as one of the the best SaaS companies out there. So yeah, we, we see that a lot.
0: I always say I pray for the confidence of a pre seed founder with a five year forecast.
1: Yeah. I that you know pre seed is not my not the space where I spend a lot of time. But yeah, I, I'd agree. I saw that recently you tweeted about it and I, <laughs> I I chuckled and agreed.
0: Well, you know, the haters said these two guys cannot possibly talk about Tam for an hour straight. And we said hold our beers. So Sebastian, uh, we I did it. We did it, man. I'm so, I'm so grateful for you coming on and dropping these knowledge bombs and, uh, and, and teaching us and letting us into your world. So, so thanks for carving out time for us. Thank you for having me, CJ. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Hsu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by Some AI Thing. Yelling an in intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.